You're listening to the Chancellor Pink Podcast on Chancellor Pink Radio. I used to really like David Mamet. Um, you know, he wrote some of the best screenplays like The Verdict, Untouchables, uh, some of the better movies of the 80s. Uh, were written by him, and of course, some of his plays have been outstanding. Uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, American Buffalo. And he made some really good movies. I thought uh, House of Games, Spanish Prisoner. One of the movies that he wrote and directed, State and Maine, was good. One of the movies that he wrote and directed that I had never seen the full movie of, I saw the second half years ago, was Heist. Was from 2001 with Gene Hackman, one of his last films. Uh, Delroy Lindo and uh, Danny DeVito and that Rebecca Pigeon, who uh, was in a lot of David Mamet's films. He ended up marrying her after Lindsay Krause, who was in House of Games, and him divorced. But something about uh, so I watched I watched Heist last night and it was okay. It was. Classic mammoth dialogue, and um, nobody uh, particularly uh, spectacular in their performances uh, uh, in the in the movie. Uh, you know, it's kind of like at that point in their careers, Danny DeVito and Gene Hackman, who had really had some great, interesting roles uh, just prior to that, it kind of reached a. Uh, I wouldn't say a nader, but a, a low, a low, a low. By 2001, they were fading out. Of course, Hackman retired. I think last movie he made was Welcome to Mooseport in uh, 2004. Uh, he's still kicking. What is he, 91 now? He did Runaway Jury as the crooked jury tampering creation guy behind the scenes uh, in 2003 before that, and he did... Of course, the Royal Tannenbaums in 2001, uh, the very well-regarded Wes Anderson film, uh, did at the same year as Heist for David Mamet. Uh, but the most noted, noted uh, thing for me in Heist was to see Sam Rockwell, you know, went on to win an Oscar for three billboards, uh, play a role, a significant role in that movie back when he was uh, in his 30s, you know, um, I think he was like 33, 32 when he made that movie. Um, and I like Sam Rockwell. But but still, having said that, and of course, the, the, another mammoth regular, uh, Ricky Jay, who was in like almost every movie he made, who died uh, just a couple years ago, um, was also in Heist. Um, so you'd think, oh, wow, it's a good cast. But it really... Nothing sizzled. It wasn't bad. It was, you know, classic mammoth dialogue directed, uh, delivered by a bunch of competent actors. But it was lacking something. And the ending in particular, a lot of violence. And and what it showed me, there's kind of a, not necessarily a misogynistic ending, but, you know, David Mammon has a tough view of women. He's made several plays, Oleana, uh, Edmund, where he wrote scripts and or plays that really you know he went through a tough divorce and and kind of took shots at uh, women uh, through it all and 
I think um, you can tell the guy the guy has a dark opinion of mankind. You can tell that from everything he writes. Well, one thing I found out about him about 15 years ago or so is he is Republican. He became Republican. Um, sort of like James Woods, you know, were they were liberal. Woods was a cocaine addict, uh, you know, but they were involved in the the arts and they just converted to being conservative through their experience of being in Hollywood and being around that environment. And one thing I remember about David Mamet, uh, the playwright, and then went into Hollywood, I think he had a lot of resentment, you know, for the way that his uh, movies were received. He he probably has a huge ego and thinks they should have been huge hits. And they were pretty popular. I think he did quite well for a, as a director, you know, as, as a movie maker for someone who was really just a writer. Uh, I think he did quite well. I think he's made a good living. But I just think he – I heard an interview he did just uh, early last year for Breitbart. And he had a lot of bitterness about Hollywood. And um, he showed that in his script for State and Maine where he mocked you know, Hollywood and sort of eulogized the writer as the only good thing about Hollywood. But then in his interview for Breitbart from a year and a half ago, he was kind of acting like most writers are – don't have an original thought in their head. And that's because they don't take the time to be alone, he said, and to actually come up with crazy ideas. And then another, and then another. They're too busy, you know, looking at their phone and distracted all the time. They never really isolate and let their mind wander, which was a good point, but but it was one of the few he made on that inter- in that interview a year and a half ago. And when I heard him back about 15 years ago talk about why he became a Republican, you know, I liked what he said back then, in a way. What he said is he started to work in television, and everyone was just more efficient. They just got to work, did their job, got it done, and closed up for the day. And he began to realize that the the movie makers in Hollywood were just, you know, pampered brats, and that effectively he thought all liberals uh, are just... You know, when they worry about everyone in the world, they're really just worrying about themselves. And it's so funny how Republicans do this. They they flip everything on its head. You know, of course, the reality is Republicans are just worried about themselves. And they want the laws and the government to reflect protecting their own and things that matter to them. Whereas the liberals truly are trying to pass laws that open doors and, and create safe havens for everyone. But those everyone aren't them, so they resent it, you know. But it's funny how they turn that on its head and they say, um, you know, liberals in Hollywood are all selfish and into themselves, and so therefore Democrats are really just trying to enforce their view of the world on people. When their view of the world is inclusion, that's the part that's confusing. But what I liked about what he said 15 years ago, David Mamet, was, you know, he just took a liking to the hard work, kind of just get it done, practical world of television, as opposed to the lazier, slower, spend tons of, tons of money, wasteful kind of creative nador, as he called it, of, of, of movie making. And that sort of opened his eyes to sort of the people that are more based in money. And then one of the big things about Heist is a movie where he says, you know, you know, People think love makes the world go around, but it's money, you know, and, uh, and he said, you know, there was another line where it's like, you know, 
Is it gold or is it love? I said, well, it's, it's love too, love of gold. So there, and so I, I, you know, I was remembering that he's a Republican now and I, and I looked into him while I was watching Heist because in today's day and age, I used to just watch a movie, uh, but he's right. It's hard to focus. We have our phones and now I, I tend to get a thought while I'm watching a movie and pick up my phone and do a quick search and dart my eyes up and down from the phone to the screen, assuming I'm not missing anything. But of course, when you do that, you're really diminishing the effect of any film. So I just want to tell everyone out there, don't do that. I'm a hypocrite when I say that because I do it regularly. But honestly, movie watching is a huge part of it is watching every single frame because now if you're watching a piece of shit movie, fine. You know, they, the director didn't know when to edit, when to cut. Uh, you know, music is irrelevant. A, a look of a scene, a face, a thing doesn't mean much. But if you're watching a movie put together by someone where it's really efficient, where the where the editing and the and the writing and every scene matters, believe me, every single frame was left there for a reason. Every single utterance, word, look, you know, every every note of music was to create a mood and to, and to create a message and make you understand the characters better. And that's the number one reason why, to me personally, just me. Film is by far the greatest art form of any, of painting, of pictures, of dance, of music. It, it, to me, film is the greatest art form. Precisely, you know, stage acting, precisely because it comprises so many art forms, all of them. You know, good writing, uh, good lighting, good photography, good music, and uh, editing to tell a message. And you can tell when you're in the hands of a master filmmaker because from the moment you click, you know, play and you are on home or you walk into a theater and it starts, you just feel like you're being controlled. And when it's good, you say, take me, I'll, I'll surrender. I surrender to you, filmmaker, director, editor, whoever's doing this, you know, of course it's the director in the end of a really great film, you know, take me. And, and then, then the really great directors, you know, get great performances time and time again. That's why I say what you want about Woody Allen, you know, as a writer-director. You know, and he doesn't have anything flashy happening in his movies ever. And he works on very, very low budgets all the time. But he's got a lot of Oscar winner, winners. And call him evil things when it comes to women because of allegations in his past. But he's gotten some of the most fantastic uh, female performances of all time from his actresses, um, you know, through the years. Um, he's, he's how many Oscar winners has he directed, you know, from Mira Servino in a supporting role to, of course, uh, Diane Keaton, you know, and Annie Hall to her Oscar and Kate uh, Blanchett in, in uh, um, what was that, Blue, whatever, what the hell was it called now? But, uh, I mean, Diane Weist and Hannah and her sisters. I mean, think of all the women characters that have been written to stardom in, in Woody Allen movies. He understands women well. And he understands writing. But more importantly, here's my point. He understands editing and filmmaking. And when you watch a Woody Allen movie, every every a good a good one, a good one. He's never not every movie's great. You're just carried along seeing the scene. Boom, boom, boom. Things are happening. And it's all it all matters and it's vibrant. It's vibrant is the word I like to use with a really good movie, even a slow one. People, if you read, 
reviews on IMDb or whatever from a lot of the idiots, I'm sorry, people who think they have good taste in movies because everybody thinks everything, right? Everybody thinks they're good at everything. Uh, you see a lot of times there's complaints of it was slow, it dragged, nothing happened, you know, and they say this about really good movies, right? So like Raging Bull or something, you know, or The Godfather, whatever. And um, what you realize is that they don't, they can't understand uh, they can't let go and say, take me. Wherever you're taking me, director, I surrender. And they can't just go with the ride. Because if you do and you allow that film to, you know, basically absorb you into it, uh, you you can, you realize these people spent hours uh, framing this, cutting it, you know, write, rewriting it, writing it, take, take after take. David Fincher has his actors do take after take after take to the point where a lot of them, you know, went crazy. Christopher Plummer, you know, was driven up a wall by David Fincher when he made uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I mean, he was really uh, the late Christopher Plummer. Maybe that's part of the reason he died uh, <laughs> at only 91 or whatever he was. He lived a long life. But... um so, I'm, you know, you, when you watch a good filmmaker and you watch good writing and you watch good directing, you realize it because it's moving and it just sucks you in and it's happening and it's vibrant. And that's certainly the way uh, David Mamet can be when he's really uh, cutting his writing good and getting good performances from his actors. And he wanted he liked that out of television, that they were just like, get to the point, you know. But I, you know... At the end of the day, I'm still like, yeah, really? Because also when you when you listen to David Mamet's characters, there's a lot of valuing of money and there's a lot of inhumane people, characters in his in his plays and movies. And there's not a lot of empathy of anyone. And when you think about it, it's cool that he makes movies about crime. He's always made movies about con artists and criminals and men with hardened chicks and women who are backstabbers and, you know, devious. But then you also think, you know, he's not really writing characters that are like good people. Probably the closest he came was, was uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's writer in state and Maine. You know, it was actually like a pretty good guy. And, um, uh, Pigeon, whatever her name is, Pigeon, his wife-to-be was the girl in that as well, the bookstore owner. And she was a likable girl. So he, that was probably the, that's probably, I think that's the movie where he met her, fell in love with her, and got married to her after State in Maine. Um, Rebecca Pigeon, right? Isn't that her name? Um, but, uh, which Alec Baldwin, by the way, was in that movie before he was murdering people. No, shh, that's not funny. But um, I like Alec Baldwin, but boy, what a, what a massive fuck up on his part. I mean, to be honest, I don't, I, if you're an actor in a movie and they give you a gun, even if they say it's cold, which my understanding is means there's nothing in it, not just blanks. It means there's nothing in it. But anyway, it's a real gun, by the way. They were using real guns on that set. That's insane, first of all. But even if they use real guns, would you really pick one up and just start firing it and pulling the trigger without looking through it? How hard is it? I think it was a revolver. I mean, you just pull out the, slip it out the car you see it in the movie i've never held a gun in my life but it looks pretty easy to push that thing out look in the in the chamber i don't know i mean just because someone says cold i don't have to look i don't have to think really i don't know that just seems odd to me i'm not saying he 
you know, was involved in it or put the bullet in if there was a bullet, which they still haven't confirmed yet. Was it a blank that had a projectile come out of it, which doesn't happen with blanks? Or was it a bullet? And then I, I've seen certain reports confirm it was live ammunition, but that hasn't been finally determined yet. But assuming it was, because it looks like it was, because they were using it for target practice. The, the employees, workers were going off set and shooting cans with it on fences and shit. And then they put it back in the mix and that new girl armor, 24-year-old dumbass, includes it and says it's clean and the assistant director hall whatever his name is says it's clean and he gives it to alec baldwin and alec baldwin goes thanks <laughs> bing 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 oh you know i mean it's just i'm sorry he's an idiot i don't care how you slice it um i just can't imagine especially a liberal anti-gun guy like him i can't imagine anyone pulling a trigger on any gun ever without checking to make sure it's not loaded anyway that aside, he was in State Maine as a hotshot actor, if, you're, if you ever saw that movie. It's a pretty good movie. It's a pretty good David Mamet movie. But back to David Mamet, while I took a shot at Alec Baldwin there, who I like and support, but, you know, he's going to have some troubles uh, the remainder of his years, and he brought him on himself, in my opinion, from, for, for yeah, just, you don't fuck around with guns even in movies, in my opinion, but whatever. Uh State Maine and no, not State Maine. David Mamet. David Mamet. His characters are just basically assholes, and his view of the world is very, very bleak. And then you say, "Are you really a Republican, David?" Because because of how good they work in TV, and they understand economics and money. Are you really a public Republican because you worship the fucking Almighty Dollar? Are you really all about money? And it's part of your resentment about Hollywood really that they're so self-centered and liberal and full of themselves? Or is it really that they they kind of rejected you as a Hollywood great director, that you thought your movies were spectacular and you didn't win any Oscars and and you're, you didn't make enough money and you didn't make enough money? And so you resent the whole film industry, even though you keep working in it, even though you kept making movies in it. You resented the fact that you couldn't, you thought you were making genius and brilliance because you have a very high opinion of yourself. And you, you didn't quite like how you were received. So you're, you're kind of angry at that, at that Hollywood movie making, you know, because they're, they're better than you. They're more creative. Maybe they're not as good writers all the time. But they're just, they, they just know how to make a better visual cinematic experience than you, perhaps, David. And also, they care about people more. And they, they make people cry in their movies. And they make people care and get emotional. And your movies are all kind of cold. And your plays, too, when you step back of it. Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross. All the ones I said that were good, American Buffalo. They're all cold, you know? Nobody's really nice or compassionate or empathetic at all in anything David Mamet has ever written, like I said, except for the writer and the girl he kind of falls for in State and Maine. That's it. And um, otherwise, there's just a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger, and a lot of greed, a lot of money, a lot of scheming and double-crossing, a lot of violence. So then you think, well, is he really an artist, David Mamet, or is he just a guy that... that Figured out a way to put words together to, that sounded cool, and he and he made a living at it. You know, he was he was smart enough to string together words in a creative, cool way uh, that uh, made his plays popular, and then he became uh, 
Speed the Plow is another one of his. And then he became a filmmaker and pulled it off there with certain actors. I mean, think about that. Think about it when I tell you this. In that Breitbart interview in February or March of 2020, uh... You know, first of all, he's doing an interview with Breitbart. That'll tell you a lot right there. He didn't, he didn't just turn Republican. He turned asshole Republican. But I listened to him, and they asked him about Hollywood, and they asked him, you know, and it was all about bashing liberals, the whole interview, really. And it was a scrambled mess. I mean, honestly, I thought I would hear, like, a, a really intelligent man on a pedestal speaking, but he just seemed to be rambling and he jumped around a lot in his attacks. And everything he said was clearly a lot of disdain. There was a lot of ugliness in his comments and not a lot of reason and no empathy, just like his characters. And I wasn't impressed. And I wasn't trying to be unimpressed. Like I told you 15 years ago, when I heard he had become a Republican, I was open to the reasoning why. And I, I thought, well, that makes kind of sense, a, a, a decent amount of sense. I mean, if you're a a writer, and um, you're trying to make a buck and you want to move things along. And, and as a director, too, as a director, um, you want things done. You want to, it's a job. And I know that feeling. Look, I was, I did some acting. I did some creative work, never professionally, but, and I was always kind of like frustrated by the, the creative types because they do drag their ass a lot. They aren't real practical. They don't know their lines real well. I always memorized my lines, knew everything. And the other people go, oh, you're so amazing. You know all your lines and all that. It's like, isn't that the, the thing? As Mamet would say, the thing is to know your lines. That's the thing. What did I just tell you? What did I just say? The lines. The lines? The lines are the thing. The lines are the thing. <laughs> David Mamet speak. But so, I mean, I just knew my lines. And I thought, let's move this along. Let's get it done. Let's do good work. Let's try. Let's boom. It, to me, it was like a mixture of art, but also um, just work. It was work. We were working together. And that's what Mammoth was saying. So I appreciated it. I thought, yeah, I could see how a, a guy would turn conservative about the, the creation of art in the face of some of these liberal artist types that are slackers and, you know, I need to understand the motivation for the character. What's he supposed to be feeling at this moment? And all that shit, you know? I could see how a writer in particular would go, just just say the fucking line, you know? <laughs> Action, just say the fucking line. And so it, it would make you fed up, you know, with those types of people. Okay, I could see all that. But when I heard him... Just last year in this interview, I just heard him last night, but it was in an interview from last year. I just didn't, I didn't hear the same thing. I heard a guy that was basically, he said, I don't have, he said he lost all his friends. He lost all his friends when he became a Republican. They all turned their backs on him, you know. Uh, except for, you know, one friend he has that he's really close with, he said, Ariana Huffington, which I find interesting because she's also a good friend with Bill Maher. And she's also... You know, I think she sold the Huffington Post was hers. I think she sold it, though. But I thought she was cool and liberal. And then I, I saw a few of her friends. I don't remember now who they are. But she has some really shady friends. You know, she hangs around people that are. And I don't mean because they're not all flaming liberals, because I'm perfectly fine with moderates and, and even moderate Republicans. I believe in humanity and people's ideas, as long as they have thoughts that are about people. They can be a little cold-blooded and conservative if they want to be, but just 
but just keep your eye on the prize, which is humanity. And I think uh, Trump lost, lost that prize. So here's my point about David Mamet. Okay, after going on in ways that, to me, very unimpressive, very kind of just sort of bitter, kind of transparently uh, a man who wanted to be a hot sh- Here's what I heard. I heard a guy that wanted to be really accepted and, and regarded as a, a, a premier artist but didn't get in, in the movie world. You know, he went from the stage world and he was regarded that way, but he wanted the prize. He wanted to make the bucks and he wanted the acclaim and he never quite made it. And so he said, fuck all these people. They're all idiots. They all think this and that. And he turned his back on them. Uh, and became Republican just to spite them. And I, I honestly think that's what happened to James Woods, too. He started fucking all these girls that were like, could be his granddaughters. <laughs> and, you know, he went off in his cocaine rampage. And he just said, you know, I don't like all the criticism I'm getting from my own. They're judging me. So fuck them, you know. And I just really think conservatism always was, and certainly is today, a fuck them. Philosophy, ideology. I think, you know, to be a Republican is to say proudly, fuck them. Uh, I saw a guy on Twitter the other day whose header is a Trump flag, uh, American flag that says, that has written on it, uh, Trump 2024. And underneath it, it says, fuck your feelings. And he's a big Trump supporter, obviously. And although Trump would never... Uh, publicly endorsed that slogan, although he might by 2024. Who knows how far his followers and he will fall by then. But that truly is his slogan, and it was his presidency. Fuck your feelings. And uh, it went even further. It was, if you're a human with feelings, fuck you. Uh, And it was also, if you don't care about only you, fuck you. And if caring about you means you don't care about only me, fuck you. And really, when you think about it, the whole current Republican Party that's into Trump is all about fuck everybody but me, but we're all in this together behind Trump. And that's why they are so scary and could support someone who's Hitler-esque and hateful. And they're blinded to his inhumanity and monstrosity because they don't even like each other. They don't like anybody. They hate their lives. They're angry. They shouldn't be. Like David Mamet's rich, famous, wealthy. He has a younger wife. What's he upset about, you know? But they have this bitterness, and they just want everything to be about them. And they want every law passed to be about white men or whoever they are. And they're sick of minorities. They feel threatened. They're angry. They're bitter. And people like that who really hate everybody and don't trust anybody, it's very easy for them to look, be blinded to monstrous behaviors from one particular leader. They can focus and idolize one character who speaks that hatred, right? Who speaks that animosity, who speaks to their heart because their heart is black. And so that one person who mirrors their black heart, that's the one person they'll like because that's them. And they will basically project themselves into that person. And so it doesn't matter how many crazy things Trump said or how many awful things that he did that even went beyond what these people would do or think. They're like, I'll forgive that, I'll forgive that, I'll forgive that, because that man is me. Because that man speaks what I feel. 
So he can violate what they feel 50 million times over. It doesn't matter. They've already decided to focus on him. And again, think about it. When you really hate everyone, you still need somebody, right? Even the most vile of people have a dog they love to kick around or a cat, right? Or a wife. (laughs) If you're one of these white abusive men that love Trump. Um, And so at the end of the day, everybody needs somebody. Trump is their somebody. These are lonely, bitter people. These are hateful people who resent everything almost in life and, and, and who say, fuck your feelings and who don't care about their fellow man, including their fellow Trump voter. They don't even care about everybody they're in these maskless rallies during the height of a pandemic with. They just, and I know I'm getting a little retro here because we are moving past all that, but But they can focus on Trump because everybody needs somebody, right? So so David Mamet, in this Breitbart interview last year, at the very end of it, as a wrap-up, the young punk kid, who sounds like he was like 24, who who, Mamet would say something inane and rambling and babbling and foolish, and the kid would go, oh, yeah, that's so perfect. That makes perfect sense. And you could tell the guy had no idea what Mamet just said because – None of us had any clue what the fuck he was saying. And it didn't make any sense. And it just sounded like rambling bitterness. And the kid would just stroke him because, hey, he's bitter as a Republican. And he's written Republican things lately. And so then he threw in at the end. So I just want to give it to you. Anything you want to say about the current state of politics and and the president of the United States and all that. That's that's all he said. Because the kid couldn't ask any questions. He's a moron. He works for Breitbart. Come on. So... (laughs) So Mammoth takes it upon himself to tell a story, and I, I, I have to be honest, I don't remember exactly which country it was from, but it was about this psychotic, literally psychotic, despotic leader who came to power and was adored and was praised and worshipped because people, basically what he was describing was shared psychosis, you know, which if you saw the movie Nine Perfect Strangers, they're the series on Hulu, made from the novel. They kind of do that with hallucinogenics. They try to get into an episode of shared psychosis where they can all see the same person that died in the family, the son that killed himself, whatever. But it's a phenomenon that I've heard uh, very good intelligent psychologists uh, talk about with respect to Trump, that Trump supporters we're basically accepting any lie he created and it was a form of shared psychosis. And it's kind of like what I was talking about where these bitter, hateful people get wrapped up into worshiping and seeing themselves. It's a form of psychosis. They see a delusion. They see Trump as a certain type of person that he isn't. They see him because he says the hateful words and things that some of them that they feel and they decide to wrap themselves up in this imaginary world. So David Mamet's talking about this leader in a foreign nation who who was like that. And he said it's they got psychotically for him. And here's what he said. He said, that's Trump here with the people who hate him. Now, isn't that fascinating? David Mamet said that it's psychotic, that Trump haters are all psychotic. It's become this over-the-top ridiculous, you know, they're attributing, you know, all of these vile things to him. There's some sort of like 
fever or, 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 you know, the pandemic. This was, again, remember, this was before the pandemic, right before it broke, this interview, right around the time it was breaking. But it was like a pandemic of, he was saying, of anti-Trump people. Like they were just spiraling out of control. And he was saying it was like the same form of psychotic view of someone in reverse. And what's so funny about that is it isn't in reverse. It is exactly what he was saying, except for people like him and for the Trump supporters for Trump. He took an analogy, which was about a group of people losing control of their senses in a delusional way, psychotic, he called it, supporting a leader that was clearly vile. And he said, they're seeing Trump that way in reverse. But no, they saw and are seeing Trump that way, that way, positively, exactly the same thing. He would say, well, that's, no, this person, I forget the name, I forget the country, I'm sorry, did like proven like awful atrocities, right? So he's saying Trump didn't do any atrocities. So they're treating him like that in reverse. But here's my point. That was in March or so of 2020. That was before January 6th of 2021. That was before he lost the election and persisted and persisted that he didn't to this day insisting he won it. Who's the psychotic one now? Who's committing the atrocities? Back in March, David Mamet portrayed anti-Trumpers as people who were psychotic. He called us psychotic, saying we were out of our minds with some sort of frenzied hatred towards this man and with all kinds of allegations that were completely not true. Well, guess what? He had every opportunity to prove that he was that we were wrong and that Trump is a perfectly normal man. And a, here's another thing. David Mamet called him a great president. And he said he voted for him and he, and he will vote for him again. That's what he said. So we know that David Mamet voted twice for Donald Trump. And earlier in 2020, prior to the election, he said he's a, he's a great president. So I just wonder, and, and, and I don't have to ask the question because I know the answer already, but he said that. He talked about a psychosis of a, of, of a nation, basically, against Trump when he compared it to a psychosis of a nation for a leader who was basically a sociopath. Flash forward to November when Trump loses the election and December and January and his allegations and his refusal to step down, basically, and his insistence that it was rigged and his insistence that people go and storm the Capitol and then they do and people die and violence and just destruction and mayhem of our capital and true threats to life were existing in that moment. And he absolutely instigated that because he didn't want to lose because it's all about him. Now look at Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham, totally supporting him just like David Mamet. He turned his back on Trump that after that riot, initially, initially, and then he flipped back the other way. My point is that if you can't see from that event and from his behavior after the election that the people you were calling psychos, the Democrats, the anti-Trumpers, were, were right, then I don't know when you would see it. 
You know, it's okay for you to think Trump didn't look. He did a million things while he was in office. He did a million things before he won the election, Trump, to justify the hatred that, or the fear, the fear that uh, the people that don't believe in Trump felt. But how can you deny that we were right when you look at his behavior after he lost a Democratic election, and you look at his behavior? that led to January 6th and his behavior now and even the concept of running again in 2024 after doing all that. Um, So the question I was going to ask is, I wonder if you talked to David Mema today, you know, about a year and a half later after that interview, would he still say Trump was a great president? Would he still say that we, we, the Democrats, the anti-Trumpers were the, the psychotic ones? Or would he say that we had it right? And that Trump's behavior and refusal to accept his defeat and his insistence to this day of lies and his attempt to, to, to cajole and force and even bribe political figures to, to change the results of an election just so that he would win. And the fact that, that, that his instigation of all of this led to violence and mayhem and an and a insurgence on the Capitol and a continuing challenge and question to our very core, our very democracy. We're the psychos. We're the psychos, huh? We misjudge Trump. He's a, he's, a, he's a peach. He's a sweetheart. What are we talking about? He's just a normal guy who said some things we didn't like. We overblew it. We're the psychos. No, no, we didn't overblow anything. We had this guy right. We saw who he was. We were right to be afraid. We were right to be calling the sky is falling, the sky is falling, to be screaming that out. He proved it. He proved it by his behavior after that election and by what he led to have happening at the Capitol. And someone like David Mamet, who I lost so much respect for, uh, not from turning Republican, but from that interview um, and from his support of Trump. Oh, my God. I don't even doubt for a second that he's still on board with Trump, that he'll vote again in 2024 for Trump, that he stands by every word he said on that podcast. Why? Because that's what shared psychosis is. The very trade he was talking about absolutely applies to the Trump supporters and to him. And to him with his whole turning of Republican. And to him with all of his fucking plays and movies he writes. Now I see every word he utters, every character. Now I see the hatred and the judgment and the and the bitterness and the solitude and the isolation. And I see why he focused all his energies on the savior figure of Donald Trump like a psychotic. And I see his projection in calling us psychos when he's a psycho, David Mamet, and he supports the group of psychos. So that even when a president loses fair and square an election, and it's verified by Republican election officials all throughout the country in all the states he lost, and they refuse to accept it, and they storm the Capitol. Even then, they think he should be president again. Even then, they think he's right. They still think the election was fixed. These are the people who are psychotic. These are the people who refuse to accept reality. These are the delusional people, and David Mamet is projecting his delusions, his psychosis on us. So why watch one of his plays or movies ever again? He's projecting his bitterness, his hatred, his psychosis on us with every fucking character he writes, every word the characters utter. 
David Mamet is poisoning our minds and our souls with his sick, fucked up, psychotic, delusional head. Soulless, loveless, judgmental projection of his ugliness into us. Don't watch David Mamet. Don't listen to David Mamet. Luckily, he's pretty much fading away. He's faded away in Hollywood. He came out. He went that way. He says, oh, they all deserted me. David, you deserted humanity. I love you. Yabba da boop